But let's go ahead and we'll bow together for a word of prayer. And then we will get into our study tonight. So let's bow for prayer, please. Father, we're so grateful for the word of God. And as we open up our Bibles tonight, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray the truths that we unpackage will uh, be impactful in our hearts. We wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would actually internalize the scriptures and that we would uh, purpose to be faithful and obedient to you and that we would rely upon your strength. And so I pray that as we work through this passage, you would work in our hearts. And then as we share testimonies, as we share prayer requests, as we uplift one another, um, I pray that we would have a sweet time of fellowship and um, that our hearts would be very burdened for the individuals that we're uplifting to you. And uh, we ask that you work in these individual situations, and we look forward to uh, what you'll do in the lives of the people we will, uh, we will bring into your presence. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are this evening, as we've been for a long time. I, I was looking, I guess, the first of our Server on the Mount series was in June of last year. And so we've been doing this for a little while, and we're, we're going to finish chapter 5 potentially tonight. We'll see. So only two more chapters, right? Except the, uh, the chapters we're going to get into, I think some of those sections are going to move a little bit faster but then some of the other ones we're really going to dig into. So um, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 43 to 48 together. And the title of this section that I've given is Called to Love Like Christ. Here's what it says. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only... What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now, I feel like I say this every single time we open up these passages of Scripture. These sayings are very difficult. And one of the reasons that they're very difficult is what Jesus is doing is he is confronting what is the very popular and prevailing way that the rabbis were dealing with these passages of scripture. And I think it's intriguing that he says, you've heard people say, love uh, your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, almost not just like you get a pass if you hate your enemy, but you're supposed to hate your enemy and you're supposed to love your brother or love your neighbor. Now, as we've said several times as we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, whenever he says, you have heard it said, we should ask the question, well, where did that come from? Do we find this in the Bible? In fact, I think this is a question we should ask if we're reading a book, if we're listening to a podcast, if we're listening to a sermon, we should constantly get into this habit of asking the question, is that what the Bible says? Where do we find that in the scriptures? It's a very important thing. A lot of the popular resources that are out there that are being distributed widely in the Christian world here in the United States that are very, very popular, uh, sometimes the premise of these books, and I'm going to get into this maybe towards the end of this time, um, a lot of times these books are, we could just say, secular philosophy that's being like clothed in some scriptures that have been used as proof text, and they're not even really presenting the Bible at all. They're just using the Bible to try to put authority to what they're saying. So we need to ask the question, and we need to ask it often, where does it say that in Scripture? Is indeed this what the passage is saying? That's really what Jesus is doing. You've heard this said. You've heard it over and over and over and over again. But I'm going to tell you that that is not what the Scriptures teach. That's where Jesus is going. So, a summary of this passage of Scripture is Christ is confronting the rabbi's selective teaching on interpersonal relationships to contrast his rightful authority with their misuse of delegated authority. 
Now, the rabbis were given a responsibility to teach the word of God. I mean, out of all of the tribes, there was a tribe that was set aside, the Levites. Their job was to teach the word of God. They were actually assigned to this task. Some of the Levites were working in the temple and they were part of the sacrificial system. But their job was to teach the law, to teach God's word. So these rabbis had an important function. They were given this function by God in the same way that a pastor gets up, they open up the word of God, they preach and they teach the word of God. This is a delegated responsibility. The problem is that they were misusing this delegated responsibility. They were not taking the word of God, presenting it to the people and expounding it correctly, but instead they were, they were trimming the message, they were building on the message, they were sort of adjusting the things that were said. And this is a classic example of that. He is confronting this problem and he's drawing a contrast between the truth, which I have the authority because I am God in flesh, God incarnate, okay? I have the ability and I have the right, the authority to be able to correct those misuses and those misapplications of what they're hearing. This confrontation not only emphasized his rightful authority, but also pointed his listeners back to the central need for the gospel. And this is something that we see often in the Sermon on the Mount. When we, when we see a statement, we should ask the question, well, how, does, how, do I, how do I apply this? How do I actually live this out? How do I meet this standard? And this statement right here is going to take us back to why we need the gospel. So, simply put, God wants us to love our neighbor without discrimination in the same way that he loves us. In the same way that he loves our neighbor. That's what we're going to see in the text. So let's move our way through this. First of all, truth one, Israel's rabbis made sinful accommodations with their traditions. Now, when I say sinful accommodation, what I mean is rather than just teaching the word of God plainly, saying what it says, applying it consistently with the intent that was given, they were accommodating it through tradition to say things that either made them feel good It was making the people feel good and ultimately it's going to give them uh, some position and some clout. And a lot of false teaching, a lot of false teaching is tickling the ears. What it is is you know that this is a message that's popular. It's one that people like. So you give it and if you give it, you you can draw a crowd. And if you draw a crowd, you have the potential to use that. That is a very common um, trait that we see with false teachers. This is what's going on here. So in verse 43 says, you have heard it that it was said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions about this passage. Because if you want to understand the background, we've got to ask these questions and try to answer them based on what's in the passage in front of us and the rest of scripture. So question one, what was their teaching? What were the rabbis saying? Well, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Simply put, you need to love people that are lovely, people that are kind, people that are good to you. I mean, everybody does that, okay? We love people that love us, that our love is something that is usually reaction, okay? Why do people get married? Well, they take a little risk, and then this person kind of reciprocates, like, all right, now I can take a better step here, and eventually things start progressing because they see, you know, this person is responding to me, all right? God's love is very different. When God looked at us, he didn't see us and say, what a lovely person. What a, what a great opportunity that I have. I'm going to love them because they're so good and they're so kind and they're so sweet. He goes, I'm going to love them because I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to love them in spite of the fact that they're living in rebellion against me and they're living contrary to my ways. So their teaching said, love the lovely. And it was okay, it was acceptable to hate the unlovely and the spiteful. In fact, you could even go beyond that. Not just it's okay, but it's almost like you should hate this person that has been spiteful towards you. Another way to put it is that vengeance and animosity are completely justifiable. And this exceptional situation is something that they established in their teaching. So that's what they were teaching. What they were teaching was not consistent with what we see in Scripture. Second question. 
What was the source of this teaching? Well, we can just state it very plainly. It was not the Bible. It was not scripture. And we know that because of some of the Old Testament passages that go directly contradictory to this teaching that the rabbis were giving. For instance, in Leviticus 19, verse 17, he says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Now, why would he have to say that? Well, because sometimes your brother can do hurtful things to you and spiteful things to you and can make you angry. And he says, don't hate them. In fact, I think about the proverb that says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. You remember that that passage of scripture in Proverbs? What it's saying is the closer a person is to you, the deeper the wounds go when they've wronged you. And so if there's a contention between people that are related, their family, guess what? Those are really, really personal wounds. So he says, do not hate your brother. By the way, you know more about your brother than almost any other person until you get married, right? <laughs> it's just the truth. Leviticus 19, 18, the next verse, he says, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, when Jesus gives the summation of the law, we'll talk about this later on tonight, he says, here's the summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, the Shema. And then this passage is giving the second aspect to this. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you're looking at the law, all of the laws are dealing with our relationship to God or our relationship to people. And the truth is our relationship to people and our relationship to God, they're intertwined. It's almost, you can't separate them out because God values people. He cares about them. So our attitude toward them is really a reflection of our attitude toward their creator, the one who loves them. A third passage, Zechariah 8, 17. He says, let none of you imagine evil in, in your heart against his neighbor. Love no false oath. All these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. So we read verses like these and we ask the question, well, where do the rabbis get this teaching from? Well, simply put, they established a tradition. <laughs> it was easier to tell people, hey, love the, the people that are kind to you and hate the ones that are not, than to say, well, God says to love your neighbor whether they're good or bad, <laughs> whether they're kind or whether they're offensive. Yes, even those close family relations that we come in contact with and there's a lot of friction, we need to love them too, not just the ones that we easily get along with and so this is a tradition in Matthew 15 verses 7 to 9 Jesus says the following he says hypocrites well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men that word hypocrites is important. These are people that were stepping in the role of opening up the scriptures and saying, this is what God says, but what they're saying wasn't consistent. And not only that, what they were teaching, they were not living themselves. They were putting burdens on people that they themselves were incapable of following. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. The second statement that really stands out is, he says, it's in vain that they worship me. This system that they are a part of, that they say is worshiping me, is a system that is empty. It's vain. It has no value. It's not true worship. There are people that gather together and they call it worship and God says it's empty. It's got no value. It's not worshiping me. Whatever y'all are doing down there, it's not worship. That's what he's saying. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And thirdly, we see the statement they were teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. In other words, they were saying, just saith the Lord. And God's saying, I didn't say that. <laughs> what are you talking about? That is not what I meant when I said that. So the third question is this. Well, why did they make this accommodation? 
And, you know, if we think about this, it's a lot easier to make a judgment about a situation when you don't have any faces and you don't have any names and you don't have any relationship. <laughs> it's so much easier, okay? It's like, it's like when guys are in seminary and they sit in a class and their, their professor gets up and he lays out the text in front of them and he says, well, there's, there's people in the church that hold this view and this view and this view and let me talk about the weaknesses with this view and this view and this view and this is why I hold this particular view and they're trying to help you to work through the text and all the guys go to lunch and they sit there and they debate the issues at the table. Yeah, it's true. I was one of them. I did that, all right? And you know, preachers still do that actually, even when they're not in seminary. Well, it's really easy to make some really crazy statements at that stage in life. But all of a sudden, when you're looking across the table at somebody that you know, you care about them, and your lives have kind of interconnected, you have a harder time saying the same thing. You really do. Or if you know it's going to cost you something, okay? How many times does someone look at the situation and go, well, you know what? If I say the right thing here, this might be the consequence and I don't want to deal with that. And so they cut it. So why did these guys do that? Well, one was self-justification. They wanted to find ways to excuse their own sinful actions. I mean, if I'm telling you this is what God says, in the back of my mind I got to be thinking, well, yeah, and I'm not doing that, so it kind of affects my conscience, right? It should. Self-justification. Well, I can give you an excuse and that gives me an excuse too. That's what I'm doing. Or two, pride. They wanted a personal view to be the final authority. And I think this is actually a really big problem that we have as Christians today. You know, we want to take our own personal opinion about an issue that is a bit on the subjective side. And we would like to enforce that as if that is God's standard, his rule, his authority is behind. That's what they were doing. But this third one is the one that was maybe the most obvious. It was about ambition. They were materially profiting, benefiting off of their teaching. I mean, the men that Jesus was the most aggressive with, he says, whoa, and he does it over and over and over again. These were not the people that were the low sinners of society. These were the people that had established their power and their wealth and their position in society because of their religion, because of their ability to teach the word, because they were very respect, respected in the society. And so it was ambition and the drive for authority and influence and power that was often behind their accommodations of the scriptures. Because if somebody's a John the Baptist, they're preaching in the wilderness, okay? Because the things that they're saying are not, they're not making people feel good. They're not making people happy. They're making people feel convicted. And so why did they make the accommodation? Self-justification, pride, and ambition. Question four. What, what is the consistent teaching of Scripture on the issue? Now, I already mentioned the Leviticus passages and the Zechariah passage, so I'm not going to read those again. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. And so turn there for just a moment. Maybe keep your finger in Matthew 5. But go with me to Luke chapter 10. And this is a very familiar passage of scripture. We all have heard a sermon or a, a lesson. Maybe a Sunday school teaching on this passage of scripture. This is the story of the good Samaritan. This is where it starts. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 10 verse 25. This kind of lays the context for the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, behold a certain lawyer. And when he says lawyer, don't think lawyer like in the sense of our modern day lawyers, okay? These are people who were legal scholars of the Jewish Mosaic law. Because remember the Mosaic law is the law in Israel. Of course the Romans had their laws too. But they kind of allowed the Jewish people to govern themselves on many levels. And so this is a person who wasn't just a legal scholar, they were a Bible scholar, okay? However, their Bible scholar was kind of this blend of the traditions of the elders and the Mosaic law. We could talk about the Talmud. And so they had this blend of ideas. Some of it was Bible and some of it was tradition. So this lawyer stands up and it says he tempted Jesus. 
He was trying to draw Jesus out and make him look bad in front of the other people. He says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is that a good question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if it's what needs to happen for me to have eternal life, good question, all right? But that word do indicates that in his mind, I'm going to have to present some things to God in order for him to accept me. So what are those things? Jesus said unto him, well, what is written in the law? That's a great question. You're a liar. You're a scholar. You're a scribe. What does the scripture say? He doesn't say, what do your traditions say? He says, what does the law say? That's where the biblical authority is. And then he makes the statement, how do you read it? How readest thou? What's your interpretation? He answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. Whew, that's a good answer, is it not? Man, if I'm going to earn my way to heaven, I got to keep the law 100%. That's right. Anybody do that? Nope. This is really interesting where this goes. And he said unto him, thou hast answered right. Jesus is like, you're right. You want to earn your way to heaven? You got to be perfect. Now the next question should have been, well, since I obviously am not, are there any other options? <laughs> that's the question he should have asked. But that's not the question that he asked. And the question that he asked tells us a lot about the way the rabbis thought. It says, but he willing to justify himself to Jesus. What an amazing statement. Said, well, who's my neighbor? Now, why did he ask that question? Well, it's because the rabbis were teaching, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. <laughs> you have the right to define who you can love and who you can hate. And if I can define the people that I really despise in life as people that I can justifiably hate, then I can pretty much just walk away from that law and say, I keep the law. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, well, based on our traditions, I don't have to love everybody. Only my neighbor. So what does Jesus do? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And there's a reason that Jesus makes the hero of the story the Samaritan. Because the man despised the Samaritans. And when Jesus talks about all these, all these religious people who watch this man dying on the side of the road just walk away from him. They say, oh, and the Samaritan, he came and he, he, he bandaged up his wounds, put him on his animal. He takes him to a lodge. He, he takes care of him there. He pays for his lodging. He tells the person, here is some money for the rest of his stay. And when I come back through this area, if I owe you anything, I'll pay it all. And those guys are like, oh, come on. Why that guy? Well, you know what Jesus was saying? You hate Samaritans and he's your neighbor. And so if you hate a Samaritan, then you're breaking the law. Simple. That's what he's saying. And so when he asks him, how do you read this? The man says he's, willing, says he's willing to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? What it shows you is the minds of the people. And guess what? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. You ever sat down and given the gospel to somebody and you ask them all these questions, they tell you about all these troubles they're having in their life and they, and they talk about these things and they're clearly very sinful things. And then you ask them, well, like, how do you, you know, do you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Oh yeah, I'm I'm a good person. And you're like, ah, what did you just tell me a few minutes ago? Like, this is not compatible here. That's what the guy's doing. And the fact is, if it's not for the grace of God, opening our eyes and convicting our hearts through the preaching of the law that says you fall short and you fall short, the fact is we all think that way. Think about what the apostles say. Romans 12, 14. He says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Man, that's hard. That's really hard. I mean, somebody that really rubs me the wrong way. I'm supposed to talk good about them? Well, as good as you can without lying. You say, well, I can't say anything good about them. Well, then you don't need to say anything about them, right? Okay, you don't. But don't speak evil of them. That's, that's the point. 
Bless them. Speak as good about them as you possibly can. Wish them well. Romans 12, 17, he says, recompense to no man evil for evil. He says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. He says, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, saith the Lord. You know, a lot of people say, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, it's Bible. And thus saith the Lord. <laughs> it's the Lord who is supposed to be the one in that position. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. In so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 13, 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 5, 14. All the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, do you see how there's this consistency in the Bible? The Old Testament law, Jesus' teaching, and New Testament application from the apostles. And there's lots of other passages of scripture that I could have gone to. So we see very clearly that what they were teaching was unbiblical. Second question, or second truth is this. Christ aggressively confronted their false teaching. Now, it, it, it's really amazing. In fact, I had a conversation with a pastor friend just the other day. And he said, do you not find it interesting that there were some people that that Christ chose not to be extremely confrontational with. And then there are others he was just like, boom, right there. He's like, what was the difference? That's a great question. Okay. But these people, they had access to the truth. They knew the truth. They had no excuse. The reason they were in this position was because their hearts had been hardened to the truth through this continual process of hearing the word of God and suppressing the, tr the truth. And that's why he was so aggressive with these people. And not only that, what they were teaching was influencing other people. What they were teaching was bringing people into darkness. And so he's very aggressive about it. Verse 44, he says this, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I'd like to kind of break this down a little bit so we can kind of appreciate what he's saying. Because he, he addresses a couple of different ways that we're supposed to relate to people even though they have caused us, caused us trouble. The first is this. He confronts the issue by contrasting his authority, legitimate authority, with their <clears throat> illegitimate accommodation. You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. You see the contrast? You're hearing this. But this is the truth. This is the right way to look at this. This is what God's actually saying. They had stepped outside their jurisdiction as legitimate teachers of the law. Rather than shepherding the people under the delegated authority of scripture, they abused them by adding burdens and cutting the true message. And when we think about this, we, you know, we talk, the word pastor means shepherd. Interestingly, that, that, that word is not used in the New Testament as much as overseer, bishop, okay, or elder. That word pastor is really describing what the office does. It's shepherding. It's caring. In fact, one of, the, one of the great passages is when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he says to them that you need to feed the flock of God which is among you. And you need to do it by taking oversight. And he talks about that passage of scripture where he, he uses the word for overseer, bishop. And he uses the word for pastoring, shepherding. That's the feeding the flock of God. And he, he calls them elders. Okay, So when he's doing that, what he's indicating is that your primary function when you are given that responsibility by God is caring for people through the preaching and teaching of God's word. It's warning them. It's comforting them, it's encouraging them, it's shaping their perspective. There's lots of different aspects to it. But these people were not doing it. Because they were more concerned about keeping power and padding their pockets than they were about speaking truth. In Ezekiel 34, he talks about the shepherds that feed themselves, who have not strengthened those who are diseased, who have not bound up that which was broken. They have brought again that which was driven away. With cruelty they ruled over them and scattered the people as if they had no shepherd. 
That's what the rabbis were doing. You might say, well, it would seem that telling people to hate their enemies was actually making it easier on them, so are they really shepherding them? Well, if that's not what you're supposed to hear, instead you're supposed to hear, love your enemy, and here's how you're supposed to relate to them, well, guess what? That's not shepherding, okay? And ultimately, it's going to have a detrimental effect down the road. There's going to be some kind of reaping as a result of that sowing. So that's what they're doing. Secondly, he was reestablishing a correct interpretation of the law. He says, love them. Now that statement, love, is talking about disposition. It's talking about attitude. Anybody ever heard the statement, well, you got to love them, but you don't have to like them? (laughs) That's not biblical, guys. Okay, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Love is a dispositional word, okay? It's about your attitude towards the person. Now, love is not only attitude. It's not just sentimentality. But there's supposed to be affection toward people. He talks about having bowels of compassion, all right? It means that deep down in my gut, I feel compassion for this person. That is a part of loving them. So he's describing the disposition that they should have. Do not harbor personal animosity. Rather, love them. The second statement is bless them. This describes how we should speak about them. Now, how do we tend to talk about people that are making us angry? Not very nice. (laughs) You know, people hear this and they're like, you said what? No, a lot of times we, we just kind of vent because we're frustrated about something. And then sometimes the vent kind of comes back to us. We're like, oh, shouldn't say things like that, right? And maybe we'd even say, oh, I was just venting. I didn't really mean it. But he says, don't do that. Bless them. Don't go around trying to undermine them and speak nasty things about them and tell everybody how bad they are. Hey, if somebody's an evil person, you don't have to tell anybody they're evil. They can see it, okay? (laughs) They can see it. People's reputations do follow them, okay? You don't have to trash somebody many times for who they are to become obvious to people. But he says, speak well of them as honestly as you possibly can. And again, if there's not much you can say, then you don't have to say anything. You just leave it alone. The third thing, do good to them. Now, loving them is talking about disposition. Blessing them is talking about how we talk about them. Doing good describes the actions that we actively take towards someone. Do good according to God's standard of righteousness. Remember, it's not our place to do evil to others, even those who are evil and have done evil toward us. Now, when we have some kind of an issue with a person, we sometimes we fall into this, let's play chess with them. Okay, let's go tit for tat with them. You punch me, I'll punch you back. I won't punch you, you know, first but i'll punch back that sometimes is the attitude that i don't mean physically okay but the idea is that we we have this mindset you do this i'll do this i'm gonna get even with you i mean this is raising children you see this all the time okay we have to deal with these kinds of things all the time he says do good to them do good to them and then he mentions another one pray for them so I might say, well, I know there's a couple of imprecatory prayers in the Bible. I could probably pray a couple of those right there. That's not what he's talking about, okay? Those imprecatory psalms are written by a king. He's at war. He's supposed to defend people, all right? There's a whole lot we could say about those passages. We're not dealing with interpersonal conflicts, you know, an imprecatory prayer against your husband or your wife or one of your kids or mom or dad. We're not talking about that. Pray for them. Take the situation to God. Say, God, you know what's going on. You know how I feel. You know how angry I am. You know how offended I am. You know how unjust this is. I'm giving it to you. And I'm going to trust you because I know you're good and I know you love me to work in this situation the best way possible. I think the older I get, (laughs) the more I realize how many situations I don't really know what the best way to handle them is. You know what I'm talking about? You know, this is like a really messy situation. And you look at that, you're like, "Ah, if I could do the work of God here, I'm not sure how I'd approach this. I I really don't know. 
maybe that's a good thing when we start thinking that. We realize, you know what? It's not my place to figure out how this is supposed to play. I'm going to let God do it. I'm going to let him work in the situation. Pray for them. Do not seek to take personal vengeance, but roll the issue onto God's shoulders. Seek what is best for them and go to the only one that can facilitate it, that is God himself. And what we see here is ultimately Christ is directing them back to the significance of the law. Third thing I want to show you here. I think we'll be able to get through this. Christ's teaching reestablished a focus on the importance of the gospel. Now in verses 45 to 48, here's what he says. He says, that ye may be the children of your father. Now, he is not saying you become a Christian by loving your neighbor, okay? He's talking about something that I'm going to flush out in just a second. But it is, it is by the way you treat people, specifically those who bring trouble into your life, that becomes one of the strongest testimonies to the distinction between you and the world around you. It really is. In fact, Jesus says, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. You're going to see this, how John applies it in 1 John 4. He then goes on and says this. He maketh his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? If ye salute your brethren only, what? What do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. By the way, when Jesus tells the rabbis that they're like the publicans, I don't think they like that very much. Okay? Well, even the publicans do this. It's got like, dig. Okay? Your righteousness, their righteousness, equal standing. You both fall short. That's what Jesus is saying. But here's what we see. The gospel brings real conversion which manifests itself in real godliness. Now, Christians aren't perfect people. I mean, nobody in this room is perfect. We're all, we're all flawed people. We're all sinners. We all have times we've got to apologize. We all have times we need people to confront us. We all have times that we need accountability. We all have times that we are in places we should not be. And we need God to work in our lives. And we may need other people to come alongside of us. But when a person trusts Christ, they become a new creature. And old things pass away and all things become new. And the Holy Spirit now indwells them. And that new nature and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it impacts them, it shapes them in every single aspect of their life. It doesn't make them sinlessly perfect, but it shapes their identity. It shapes their values. It shapes what they feel comfortable with, what they love, what they're uncomfortable with, what they hate. What they believe is important and what they believe is not important. And so in verse 45 he says, That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. He made a statement kind of similar to this in the Beatitudes. He talked about those who are peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Why is he saying that? Because a lost person is going to look at you and say, Why are you willing to get involved in this conflict? Why are you taking the steps that you do? Why do you approach it the way that you do? And they say, you must be a Christian. You must be a follower of Christ. You must be one of those people who claims that they're saved, okay? Because your character reflects the values of that position. That's what he's saying. A child bears the image of his father. 1 John 4, 7. I love this statement. He says, beloved, let us love one another. He's telling them they need to do this. So they're not just naturally doing it, okay? For love is of God. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Isn't that an amazing statement? So if you're doing what the Bible says you're supposed to do, it means you're a Christian and you're walking with God. That's what it means. Born of God, knoweth God. Verse 12, he says, No man that has seen, has seen God at any time, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. We are literally channels that he is working through. And when somebody says, this is what God's like, and he looks at a Christian, that person should go, oh, oh, that's what God's like? Now, a lot of unsaved people don't get that vibe, do they? <laughs> no. But when they see a Christian living like a Christian, that's very powerful. That's very powerful. It speaks 
great volumes. And when they come with the gospel, they say, wow, that, that's a supernatural message. That changes people. He says, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. So he says, everyone that loveth, born of God, knoweth God. If we love one another, God dwells in us. His love is perfected in us. And this is how you can know that you're dwelling in him. There's an amazing connection there. Do you see how what Jesus is saying is basically what John is expounding there? Secondly, the gospel brings us back to the amazing depths of God's love. Now, we all say God loves us. You know, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. We go, wow, it's amazing. He loves me like that. But even as we say this, we do not think of it in terms of the amazing nature of what it is. We don't think about the depths of it. In verse 45, it says, He maketh his sun rise on the evil and on the good. In other words, as God takes care of his creation, he doesn't go, well, you're a godly person and you're a pagan, so I'm going to let you get the rain and you're going to have a really tough harvest. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He gives them both good things. And a lot of us, we go, well, I mean, if I was God, I think I'd kind of let them starve and I'd take care of them, right? I'd let them have a hard life and I'd, I mean, I'd let him have a good life and I'd let him have a hard life. I'd be a little spiteful, a little vengeful. He says, that's not the way God is. He's kind to people. People that mock him. People that hate him. People that despise him. People that say, I don't believe that he exists. And he, he literally sustains their lives. He says, that's what God does. He does this to the just and the unjust. God's love starts with the fact that he's good. He doesn't love people because they're lovely. He loves them because he's good. James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift cometh from above. Of his own will begatty us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Ephesians 3.17, Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, that they would be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend the breadth, length, and depth, and height, and know the love of God which passeth knowledge. Those are amazing statements. So what he's basically saying is, when you love your enemy, what it does is it teaches you a lesson about God. You know how hard it is for you to love a person that's not very nice? You know how it feels impossible? Well, God just does it by his nature. (laughs) Imagine that. Doesn't that show you the difference between him and us? He is so different than we are. He is so good. And we are so flawed and sinful. It also shows the power of the gospel establishing this clear distinction between the world and the Christian. He says, if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? He says, do not even the publicans the same? If ye salute brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans? 1 John 3.10, in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Pretty amazing statements. The gospel brings us back to Christ's righteousness being the standard and reminds us we fall short of that standard. In verse 48, he closes out the section by this statement. He says, be perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The standard is not the best human you know. The standard is God. He's the standard. And we all fall short of it. It's not like, well, you know, I remember, I remember we used to give these il- illustrations when we were doing like youth evangelism. We're like, all right, I want, a, I want a seventh grader to come up here and I want a 12th grader and we're going to see how far you can jump. And you're like, well, you fell short. I mean, maybe a better illustration would be like, let's have a seventh grader, let's have a 12th grader try to jump over the Grand Canyon and see how far they get. Let's not do that, all right? Well, guess what? That extra three feet didn't matter at all. It was, it was, it fell short. And so when we compare ourselves to God, we recognize it's incomparable. He says, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments 
He shall be called the least in the kingdom. Verse 20, earlier in the same chapter, he says, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think Jesus is saying there? It's pretty simple. Unless you have righteousness from God, you're not accepted. The true Christian is someone who has understood this principle and fled to Christ alone so that the righteousness of Christ is imputed, forgiveness is granted, and he's transformed by the power of the gospel. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They see their spiritual bankruptness. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Why does he say that? Because they recognize, I can't span this gap. Verse 6, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want, I want to know God and I want to be like him in my character. And it's all bound up in the gospel. So that's what this passage of scripture is all about. Now let me put it together with some practical closing thoughts. The first thing is about authority in the scriptures. This is clearly an emphasis here. It is not the only thing. It's actually probably not the main emphasis, but it's a pretty substantial one. We do not have the right to tamper with God's word, especially when we are responsible to shepherd souls. That is what these people were doing. And Jesus rebuked it. No right to remove portions of scripture that make us uncomfortable. No right to add to scripture things that we think God should have said. No right to misrepresent something so that our self-interest is not affected. Our aim should always be faithfulness to scripture, which is ultimately faithfulness to God's authority. Two, confrontation and priority. The truth is one. This is a proverb that they used to say when we were in Ghana. The truth is one. Here's what they mean. There's not like your truth and my truth. (laughs) which doesn't seem to be understood in our society today. The truth is one. Either it's this or it's that. can't be both. That's the way it works. And because the truth is one, confrontation sometimes is inescapable. It's going to happen. I wish it didn't happen, but it does. And biblical authority and the nature of the gospel are non-negotiable matters. And Jesus is emphasizing that in these verses. We have to develop discernment when we interact with teaching and resources. Now this week, I thought about talking about like specifically some of the resources that I'm thinking about. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'll be glad to share with you what I'm thinking. But um, you know, there, you know, people will say, hey, what do you think about this author? What do you think about this book? Hey, I want to share with you this article. And you, you get into it and you're just like, ooh. I'd like to send a review to you that will really give you a good impression of how I feel about this. So somebody else can state it better than I will. But this is dangerous. This is destructive. You say, well, is the person a Christian? Well, I would assume that they are. But that doesn't mean that what they're presenting is going to help people build their lives. It's very destructive. When we, we listen to preaching, we listen to a podcast. I listen to lots of podcasts. Lots of sermons. Something I do a lot. We should not just absorb it like sponges. But we've got to ask the question, is this what God said here? Not, does this make me feel this way? Is this what it says to me? It's, is this what God said? There's a big difference. We've got to develop discernment when we interact with teaching and resources. And some of the most popular teachers, conference speakers, resources that you get in like you know, go to your typical Christian bookstore. I hate to say it, but most of them are not good. They're just not. They fall short of sound doctrine. They do not handle scripture carefully and diligently, but rather carelessly. And if somebody just embraces that whole thing, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be really bad in the long run. And, and, you know, you don't realize the detrimental effects of an idea sometimes for a decade. You don't understand them sometimes for 20 years. I hate to say that. I mean, you know, it's funny. Like when I think about ministry in my mind, well, 10 years seems like a long time. 10 years is not a long time when you think about a person's lifetime and you think about the different seasons that they go through. And when you start thinking about this, I'm not going to realize whether I raised my children well or poorly until they're adults. That's scary to think about. In other words, if I come to the conclusion 15 years into the process that I'm wrong and I'm trying to reverse course, it it may very well be too late. Save the grace of God and his kindness working in a situation. 
And so we better be very, very careful that what we embrace and what we build our lives on, it's true. And uh, it's tested. You know, somebody comes up with a, with a new idea. You're like, this is revolutionizing the Christian church. I mean, the church has been around for thousands of years, so perhaps it's not revolutionizing anything. Perhaps it's just a fad. And a couple years from now, we'll all realize it was a fad. We've got to learn to be cautious. We need to think about the diet that is shaping our perspective and that's feeding our souls. The next one is the centrality of the gospel. The gospel has to be the center of every aspect of our Christian life. It's the centerpiece of a correct view of God. If I'm thinking right about the gospel, I'm going to think right about God. Because you know what the gospel does? It reveals his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, his love, his compassion, his mercy. It's all encapsulated in that message. His faithfulness. It's the singular hope that gives us escape from eternal judgment. It's the only thing that can free us from sin's enslavement. It's the foundation for our identity in Christ. It's got to shape our disposition, how we view circumstance, people, everything. And the last and probably most obvious, well, no, it's not the last, sorry. Obedience. I mean, we shouldn't walk away from this verse without saying, he says, love your neighbor and the neighbor that happens to be your enemy. We need to obey. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. Everyone that Loveth is born of God and knoweth God. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. A lot of Christians think that they're spiritual because of their biblical knowledge. They really do. They can debate topics and issues. Well, I mean, it's great that you have those skills and maybe they can be used positively at times. But that's not the test of maturity. The test of maturity is on the character level. It's who you are as a person. Some people are very effective speakers. They're very knowledgeable in the Bible. They could do a debate and they could tie up that person in knots. But they're living destitute lives. And we've got to recognize that the responsibility of us is not to just hear the word and expound the word. It's to live the word. We've got to grow into Christ-likeness. And bottom line is, loving him and loving others is at the heart of all of this. And lastly, worship and gratitude. When we struggle to love other people, let's remember, he loves us. And we've got to step back and go, how does a holy God view me? Ooh. Me and this person who I have a problem with and they have a problem with me, we're a lot closer to one another than we are. <laughs> when it comes to comparison, we're both falling short. He's the standard. And he loved us. He's kind to us. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. May that be the thing that comes to mind when we struggle to love a person who troubles us. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to be hearers who do the word. Help us to hear the word and to embrace it from the heart and to live in the light of it. I pray that you will strengthen us as we seek to put into practice these things. May we draw upon your daily supply of grace. May we become godly people as you work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.